A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome back to Changes. I am Annie McManus, delighted to be back here with you for series 10 of this beloved podcast. I cannot believe I'm saying that, but thank you for being here as ever. I'm so excited for what we have to bring you over the coming months. Our first guest of this series is a returning guest, actually, described as the voice of the 21st century by the Sunday Times. Not a bad accolade. She is a multi-award winning author of many excellent novels. White Teeth, The Autograph Man, On Beauty, NW and Swing Time, among others. It is, of course, the one and only Zadie Smith. Well, Zadie is back with a new and long awaited novel called The Fraud, which is out this week. Her first time on Changes was during the pandemic two years ago. That was a change which we focused on heavily in the conversation, as well as her move back to London after a decade in New York. Since then, we have become friends, and with her novel out this week, in this episode, we zoom in on Zadie's personal life changes. And of course, we had to talk about the fraud. The book is mostly based in Kilburn, in northwest London, where Zadie was born and still lives. It is her first historical novel. It's set in Britain and Jamaica in the 1800s and inspired by a real legal trial that happened at the time. It invites us to look at history in a different way, looking at the sugar trade and slavery in Jamaica and how that funded Victorian England. It's a book about truth and fiction and who gets to tell their story. The book is exquisitely written and hilarious brutal at times and asks questions of the reader. Zadie is so incredibly wise and compelling and this conversation will perhaps make you think about families and freedom in a whole new light. I really hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to Changes, Zadie Smith. I thought I would start with a memory of last summer, Mm -hmm. standing on a beach in West Cork. Mm, Yeah. Waves lapping, children playing in the surf, beautiful sunshine, wind, Irish wind. Um, <laughs> and you told me on that beach that you had just finished. You'd finished oh, the yeah, book? yeah, maybe I'd done, yeah, just finished it. That was a year before now, so it's kind of like a year later from yeah. that moment on the beach. What's the process you go through as an author when you allow the book to leave your brain and enter the world and other people's brains? I do think when I finished it, I felt like, I would never be disappointed in it, that it was the book I wanted to write. That's what you said. Yeah, which is a a first for me, really. I mean, to me, the problem with the novel is that while you're writing it, it's the same as the problem of life, actually. The question is, are you crazy? I'm using that word in the most broad sense, meaning is what you think is happening and what other people think is happening the same thing? So that's one of the questions you have in life all the time. Like when I went to the pub and I met all these friends and I said a load of things, did I communicate what I meant to communicate? Was I funny or was I ridiculous? So a novel is like that. You really don't know. And books are weird because of the time involved, both for the writer and the reader. Like yesterday I watched that new Billie Eilish song for the Barbie movie. Yeah. I remember the first time I listened to it, I was almost bored halfway through. I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And Mm. And then about four hours later, I went back, listened to it again. And the second time you can you can hear the song, you hear the architecture, and mm. the third time you're like, oh, that's a, that song's a masterpiece. Right. And then the fourth time I p- could play it myself on the piano, and now it's stuck in my head all day. And so music gives you that opportunity. Yes. To know that a novel, when you say to someone you need to read a novel twice, they look at you like <laughs> <laughs> you're out of your mind. But a lot of novels do need to be read yeah. twice. With songs, it's so obvious. What's the first story you ever wrote? I didn't write stories. I copied other people's stories and just type them out. I did that all the way through my childhood. So how do you mean by that? So, you know, I pick up an Agatha Christie short or sometimes a poem, but usually stories, Woodhouse, a lot of P.G. Woodhouse, um, and just type it out exactly as it is. So it's the process of what kind of just repeating the story? I think so, or maybe pretending that that it's yours. It's quite a powerful feeling. And when I met Michael Chabon, the American writer, 
for the first time. He said he did the same thing. I don't think it's that unusual. Wow. So you just keep on repeating, repeating it until it you kind of get what a sentence is. And the very first thing I wrote, which I got in enormous trouble for, was a Michael Rosen poem. I wish I could find it. It's about mice. And I guess it's for like five-year-olds. Yeah. I found it upstairs. I wrote it out by hand. I brought it down to my parents and said, look at this poem I wrote. And my mum was like, you didn't write that poem. <laughs> and I lied and lied and lied and lied. And she, my parents were like, we know you didn't write that poem. And because it's a very yeah, famous it's poem. It's a famous <laughs> poem. So then the kind of lie broke down. And I remember like this immense shame. Maybe that's deep in my kind of yeah. mind about writing that it's kind of an act of plagiarism copying but then if you do it enough it, it gets into you yeah but I do remember my parents really coming down quite hard on me like it was quite a shameful yeah thing I was interested in the change of your name when you're yeah. 14 so you were Sadie I was Sadie what kind of a girl was Sadie before um, she changed her name well I changed my name it didn't create any change in me for a long time um I was uh very, I felt myself to be, and now I look back, I don't think it was true, but I felt myself to be extremely ugly, which when you're a girl is the only thing that matters or only yeah. thing that matters in the 80s in my mind. I, I didn't think about anything else apart from that for years. Uh, so I was pretty big. I had very, very buck teeth. <laughs> I had extremely thick glasses under which my eyes were very tiny. I had hair that I couldn't didn't know what to do with and I was very obsessed with prints so I was constantly trying to get my mother to put an actual hot comb that's what we used to use yeah. on the actual stove which she really didn't want to do my mother's a Rastafarian not by religion but by hair yes and she really really disliked doing it on yeah. principle and then, so I would force her to make that pompadour yeah so if you can imagine that all together in a north <laughs> in a northwest London uh secondary school it was crazy, yeah. And I was also kind of dressed like Virginia Woolf at the same time. Okay, what were you like in school? Like, where did you sit in the um, in the class groups? Despite all of that, I have to say, I don't think I was unpopular. It was an unusual school in that it was massive. It was more or less 2,000 kids. There was no uniform. So it was very much like a British John Hughes movie. There was, everybody had a, a scene. I remember when I first walked into the school, the first thing I saw were two girls, goths, chained to each other what? by their jeans. Yeah. So they walked around with a <laughs> chain from... So it was that kind of... Everybody wow. had their vibe. But because there were so many different types of kids from so many countries... Was it also, co-ed? Yeah, co-ed. Yeah, yeah. That there was a kind of... Whatever scene you were in, there was mutual respect. That's the best way I could put it. Yeah. Um, I was part of a group of... I suppose slight misfits we were kind of mixed group of girls and boys interested in I would say music most of all and culture yeah I guess we thought of ourselves as like bright-ish yeah and were you into the learning aspect I don't want my children to ever hear this but I honestly don't remember any educational aspect of my school until the first year of GCSE <laughs> I don't I'm sure we learned things but I don't have any memory of either lessons or having any interest in that aspect it was entirely social yeah but we were learning things through our social groups of like of course yeah we were very determined in studying the history of music which you could do then because of your parents mm. record collection so it was always chronological and mm. depending on whose house you go to someone's dad is obsessed with pink floyd someone else's dad is a early hip-hop mm. head someone's got a load of bang wrote like you you were educated that way mm. and also in that way you learn a lot of history at the same time because music tells you things about of course yeah. you know when kennedy was shot you you found out things yeah so i don't i really don't remember learning anything formally until jesus see when it was made clear to me hopefully by the teachers but i think by other kids that like uh it's now or never because you were very aware that half the school was going to disappear in two years. So there'd be a smaller cohort doing A-levels. So you just had to know that. And so I remember thinking, I'm going to smoke less weed and I'm going to focus. I had a friend, Maria, who was a kind of half Nigerian, half Russian girl. And I think we both thought we could easily end up on yeah. out of this school and no one's going to stop us 
no one's you know no one's dying for us to stay in this school so we kind of made a pact between us let's do this and very thankful to her she helped me revise she was better at maths and science and so we just did that for about four months and, and we got through so what about the changing the name where did that will come from um, it, you know, when I look at my brothers and me, the the bald fact of the matter is we all have pseudonyms, which is weird, weird in so, one family. So you are the oldest of, of three. I'm the oldest. My name is not my name. Um, but mine is a very simple reason. I, I had a massive crush on a boy, a friend of mine whose name began with a Z, and he always drew on everything, you know, exercise books with this very dramatic Z, and I just kind of wanted it, so I... You wouldn't you it, yeah. And did you change it by depot? Was it like a proper Ooh, name change? Now is the government listening? Are my children listening? <laughs> my kids the government listening? Uh, no, I never did. I just yeah. put D on everything and ended up putting it on my bank account when I got one, college application, and finally passport, and nobody ever said anything. And what did your parents think at the time? I have to give it to my parents. Like, I, they really never really interfered in anything I did right they were they were incredibly laissez-faire now i think about it so and they would have had reason to be disappointed or annoyed by it but i don't remember them saying anything about it at all have you had to think about the change in childhood what that would have been um if you have to think about what the biggest one was i think when my parents got divorced I was 12 and that was the biggest change. For me and my brothers, I think, if I can speak for them, it was the end of a nightmare. It was like a 12-year battle zone. And the moment it was over, I was just so relieved. Right. So I think whenever I have friends who are like struggling or wondering about the effect on the children or if they're going to get divorced, I always say, you know, do it. <laughs> If you're screaming at each other day and night, it's better if one of you goes. How did it manifest? Like when you say it ended, how did home life change? Did, did someone move out? Um, well, quite comically, I mean, it's melancholy for me now. There wasn't enough money for anyone to move out. So for yeah. about two years, my dad slept in the spare room. Um, and that's how it worked out. And then finally, because he was a veteran of the Second World War, at that time, Ken Livingstone ran a GLC. And it was giving out kind of subsidised apartments and houses to veterans we stayed in the flat um and it was just much more peaceful like we'd have christmases together with my father and my mother but the terrible noise and fury and was gone and so that was a big change and it also i hope without upsetting my mother i can say at that moment my family as was over as far as i was concerned i just didn't really think about my parents again in as parents I was interested in them as people but yeah. from 12 onwards I was in these streets and I didn't that and that was that you know like my mum was working hard it wasn't her fault but she wasn't home in the evenings we made our own dinner we did everything one of the things which amuses me now is that we would often bunk but what we would do is agree that if we were going to bunk we would go and do something in the city that was the equivalent of the lesson Oh my God, I love it. So instead of art class, we go to National Gallery. Or yeah. instead of, we do something. It's very noble bunking. It was so noble. It was very noble bunking, a bit annoying. Um, but that we did do a lot of that. And I'm not advising this, but I have to say, in the group of kids I was in, that was a pretty educational thing to do. They were interesting people, yeah. You went to Cambridge then? Yeah, I did. How did that feel after your childhood in Northwest London and your education I mean, it was the most improbable thing that could have happened. Like when I suggested it to the school, because the kid I was at school with, a lovely young man called Paul Siegel, whose parents, his father was at Oxford, had said, you know, you might be able to get in here. Why don't you try it? And so I took that piece of information to my deputy headmistress who swore at me. She swore <laughs> yeah. at you? Who did I think I was? Blah, 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 blah. So oh, was my like, God, Zayda, you've <laughs> got to find that woman now. I was like... Okay. Um, but I can understand. I've given them so much attitude. I was not like a great student. So but it was a grades bit... great? Again, it's really hard. Like my GCSEs, I got full disclosure. I got six A's, a B, a D, and a U. Well, so they were okay, but they were... That's six A's! I know, but in those days, you had to get 11 A's, 12... You know, oh, you had okay. to be as good as it. So they were not bad, but they weren't 
that standard. So I can see what she was saying. She was like, who do, who do you think you are? But I don't know, I just thought, I had this thought in my mind that until, it's such a childish idea, but until you're actually in the exam room, they don't know. Yeah. You could be really exactly. good. And I just always kept that in my mind. Like, they don't know yet. Like, I I could get to the point where I could get through these three exams. And the exams were all gathered in my one area of expertise, reading and writing. So I was doing English, history and theatre studies, which always right. makes my husband laugh. Um, so it was all in one place. I did that. My friend's dad did a a kind of like pretend interview with me. Right. That I think is key. Now I think about um, getting disadvantaged kids into university. It's not even the grades. It's the social knowledge. It's how you talk to yeah. people. Of you course. just have no idea. Like my yeah. parents didn't go to university. I had no reason to know. Well, you have to learn how to talk in their language. Right. And that's it. And I came into the room and he showed me exactly what an Oxford or Cambridge Don does. They're quite, um, in those days, I'm sure it's different now. They don't say very much. They kind of leave you hanging. Yeah. So you'll find yourself burbling. He kind of taught me, and he, the main thing was not that they're not looking for answers like a quiz. It's not university challenge. They want to see you thinking. Yeah. I would never have known that, you know. No. So it was that kind of thing that really helped. When I got the grades, my parents took me out for a Chinese meal in Kilburn High Road. And I can remember us just all sitting around the table, like literally dazed. We were like, what is happening? It was a really strange, like. What did they make of, of you going there? They were happy, but I, particularly for my father, I think he was a bit, he was stunned, I think, to be honest. He thought that England was fixed and that these I things see. didn't happen. I see. That was much more... So it's systemic. Yeah, yeah, he was out of school at 12 and he had told us, I don't know if it's true, that he passed the 11 plus. I mean, my father was born in 1926. And in those days, you do the 11 plus and then if you passed it, you went to a grammar school and that was your path out of his existence which was absolute poverty in Croydon right um his father had disappeared and was a criminal anyway and so he was completely uh alone with his mother and no money uh but he says he passed it and then you had to get like two and six for the uniform and they didn't have it and that was the end of that so he spent his whole life uh feeling like he had missed out on something that could have changed his life and I he's one of Thousands, hundreds, thousands and thousands of men of that generation who felt that way. Yeah. And so he ended up in the army age 16 and went to war. And went to Normandy, right? Yeah, exactly. How old was he when he did Normandy? He was younger than you're allowed to be. He lied. I think you were meant to God. be 18 and he was 17. Wow. Yeah. But he survived, thank God. He survived, miraculous. Both my father and my grandfather survived the First and Second World War. Not sure how, but anyway, they both how, did. How do you think it left its mark on him? Um, there's a lot I don't know about my father like I have half siblings who are in their 60s who want to tell me I think more about my father which I should learn but I will get there I mean I'm 47 it's about time I did learn I think he was massively damaged by it Yeah. I think he was responsible for people dying through uh, you know he's 17 but through carelessness I think he was badly wounded himself I think he saw terrible things he went to, he saw Dresden, he saw Belsen. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it was good. But but I'm like a kid in the 80s, 90s. Like, it, to me, it seemed like a fairy story. I did, it was hard to even believe it had happened. I wonder how it, it, like an experience like that can bleed or drip through generations, you know, and how, yeah. how, how you have kind of... I think the melancholy is my father and the obsession with time because he had this strange double life of having a family in the 50s and yeah. and then doing it all over again in the 70s with a girl a quarter of his age i mean it's it's insane that definitely um got to me but i think both my parents have come from like deeply traumatized histories and extreme poverty so the things i used to roll my eyes at what I thought at the time was their like snobbery and aspirational like habitat curtains and mm. trying to put books everywhere and in my father's case pretend he'd read books and things that I found excruciating. Of course now as an adult I think, oh, why were you so yeah. judgmental? They were yeah. just trying to 
you know, they were looking for a life that they'd never had. And I don't, it's ridiculous at 14, you're like trying to catch your dad out because he pretended to read us. Teenagers are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have one now. Yeah, I have one now and I know, but I, I was so hard on them both. And um, I just really didn't have any idea where they came from. I didn't realize what my father had been through. and I didn't realize what my mother had been through. I just mm. knew them as, as strange adults married to each other. came out of Cambridge, you started writing White Teeth in Cambridge. What were you, 25 when it got published? 24, 25, yeah, something 24, like that? Think, yeah. how, how did that, like, that kind of catapulting into literary fame, being the darling, being the fucking hype writer, I don't know if you use that word in literature, but you do in music, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, what, what, like, how did that, that must have been um, a, a real change. I, I felt it was a lot when I was 24, but it's, I was always able, like, anecdote I always tell which makes me laugh is I think one year I was up for the booker and I remember going into Singsbury's our sweet shop on the corner of the road which I go in every day for you know every day like maybe three times a day and for the first time ever the guy looked at me and was like you're in paper yeah I was like yes I'm in paper <laughs> he said what do you do and I was like really dude <laughs> three times a day I'm born in the neighbourhood so literary fame is very oh my favourite anecdote you told me of that is when you brought the fraud to be printed in the printed yeah, yeah. shop <laughs> no, 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 yeah I was, <laughs> when I was writing the fraud in Kilburn I just I often get manuscripts printed up so I can mark them yeah. and in the same print shop I've been doing it like spending an enormous amount of money shameful amount of money printing this thing up like once every two weeks for about 30 quid a pop going yeah. on and on and on the last very last time I went in she, she said, oh, did, you wrote this, right? And I said, yeah. She said, well, good luck with it. I hope you get it published. <laughs> and I was like, so let me get this right. On the Kilburn High Road, at a print I shop. I love it. They still don't know who I am. So that's the thing with literary fame. It's, it's very selective. Of course, there are people, readers, who you'll bump into the street who are excited, but most people don't read. So it's not, you know, an oppressive thing. And also when it happened, the internet was in baby land. Right. So I do remember being like agonized by somebody's blog, but it, it was a completely different universe. So I, I feel a bit funny that I found it so hard at the time because it's nothing compared to what young writers face now, I imagine. So how did you find it hard? I think what I find hard is being the object of people's envy. Mm. I find it really oppressive because often the things that they're wanting are not things that I want. Mm. So the, my first experience, I think, was going into the publicity. I, I only did like five interviews, I think, and they followed me around for about a decade. And what I really realized when I sat down with these journalists, who of course often were young-ish writers who either I had been in college at the same time as me, or so they were right. my generation. Right. They would ask me questions like, so what's it like to be interviewed? Like, and I realized, oh, you want to be interviewed. Right. Like yeah, this yeah, is yeah. your dream to sit in a room and have people come and ask for your views and and but being interviewed for me is a nightmare. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like not yeah, not this kind of thing because I can speak with my own mm. mouth, <laughs> but to have things I've said written down and put into a context that I that that I do not enjoy. So yeah, there's a real lack of control. Yeah, there. the sub the being a subject of other people's envy, I found really oppressive because all I wanted to do was sit down. And right, and what other people wanted, which is to go to literary festivals or to be famous or to be, if I could have given it to them, they could have taken it. Yeah, I was so used to supportive teachers, right, both in secondary school and then in university. So when I came to journalists, I thought I was just another adult who's happy for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and of course, very soon I realised, oh no, these are not adults who are happy for me. These are adults who are actually quite annoyed at me yeah. and either want these things or. So I, it was a steep learning curve, like, this is not your friend, you're not having a conversation. Yeah. And I was only 24, so, and some of them, you know, really did hurt. As in the way they wrote about yeah. you or the writing, yeah. It, it was really a crazy scene. I, I've had enough of it almost <laughs> immediately, it's fair to say. But it was really hard to keep the noise out. And I, yeah, I was just like, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. 
So you just opt out of going to the events, of the dinners, all of that. Yeah, and then like, I left the country. And then you left the country. <laughs> yeah. I just, I think the thing which got me, it was the Evening Standard printed like this gossipy story about my college life, like, like that I'd had this like elaborate sexual life. And it's like, if you're writing this about a 24 year old novelist, um, not that I'm in any way ashamed of, of yeah. my college life or my romances or anything. But I thought this is kind of out of control. Yeah. So I just left and uh, it was much better after that. You went to Rome first? I went to Rome. It was great to be in Italy. I learned Italian and I just, you know, it's my entire life and wills them. Yeah. So just to see anything else was really great. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What would you cite the biggest change in adulthood then? The biggest change in adulthood is also banal. It's just having children, which is the obvious one, but I can't think of anything more. I mean, it's yeah, it's, a, it's pretty, a, pretty earth-shattering. It's pretty big, <laughs> to the point that you can't remember, I can't remember anymore, the other life. So you were in New York when you had your eldest child? I think, uh, no, we got pregnant with our oldest child in New York, but we came home to have her. Okay. Because Nick's mother was ill. Okay. And we spent maybe six months or a year here. Um, so she's English, but then our son was born in New York. Right, okay. Yeah. And how did it change you? I feel like when I was younger, sometimes I would wake up at 11. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I had my mouth full of water there. And I think spat it that out. did sometimes happen. And, and I do, I was remembering recently, actually reading your book, that I did spend a lot of weekends going back into Soho or Dalston to pick up a credit card that I'd left before or some sunglasses or a phone. And, and life was just like this endless rolling chaos. I had no domestic existence. Like I didn't know how to cook. I was not clean. It was just that kind of life. It was, it, there was no order to it, no structure at all. And then... Kids changed all that and, and also made time so valuable to me. Yes. So that's the main thing. When I first had my first child, I didn't really realise I'd had a child for a long time. I think it was three or four years before. Well, they're babies. They're not yeah, children. Yeah, they're not children. So the it's baby still something easier. Yeah. It's still something you think you can mm. manage. Like it's yeah. a part of your lifestyle, as horrific as that sounds. And so it took a while to realise that this isn't just a, a matter of... Mm managing a being this is like an enormous relational thing that will last your entire life so how did you adapt to the domestic i mean i know that's a very long slow um, process you don't immediately start you know it but but it with is great resistance originally um yeah. and you know i my mind is completely transformed on these things i realized that you know, I, I never wanted children when I was a child. I never wanted children as a young woman. I never wanted to be married. I never wanted to be domesticated. I never wanted to have a house. You never I, wanted I, to be married. No one, any of it. I just wanted to live in a one bedroom flat in a big city, write books, be left alone. That was my only <laughs> plan in life. Didn't want any of it. Um, and then what I really realized about some of my ideas of freedom is that they were completely, they're like neoliberal fantasies. Like basically, it's like, let me choose everything leave me alone all the time don't put any demands on me only I will make demands it's a dark vision mm -hmm. and it really took me a long time to understand that things that I've been taught by the 80s yeah basically by the capitalist 80s to believe were unfreedom are freedom yeah like having people who mean something to you who you have duties towards is not unfreedom it no. is freedom it, yeah 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 it's actual existence it really took me, like, Nick is a completely different person who understood that from birth, probably. It took me a really long time 
to be free of meaning is not freedom. Mm. Like now my life is full of meanings. Sometimes they're difficult, sometimes they're painful, sometimes they're, but it's absolutely full. Mm. I don't think children are the only route to that kind of meaning, but I absolutely think you have to find something other than yourself to focus on. How did Nick meeting your husband change you? I mean, he probably is the biggest change, really. Um, mm. Maybe even because without him, there would be none of the rest of it. I just hadn't met someone before who um, was able to think of other people so consistently. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. Right. I've met a lot of charismatic, fascinating, interesting personalities. Mm. Um, and he is that too, but he literally is able to consider other people their feelings what they need and do something about it even sometimes to his own detriment mm. in my family like i love my family but we're all tr we were all trying to survive yeah so it's it's a kind of everyone's holding on to themselves very tightly because they felt unloved or unprotected and narcissism can be you know, a consequence of being unmothered or un both my parents yes. had no parents really. So they really were clinging to themselves for dear life. Yeah. And it passed down to the children, I think. When I met Nick and his family, I was like, oh, there's another, you can also like think of, <laughs> think of other people yeah. in, a, in a group, in like a relational group. So I learned a lot from watching that and, and realizing that it, it wasn't a trap. But I think when I, me and a lot of other lady writers I know when we first had children, we, we spent our whole time, you know, talking about how we were somehow trapped or imprisoned. or, But that's the most superficial idea of what a relation with other people is like, you know. Now I consider all my relations, my friends, my dog, my husband, my family, as things that liberate me from myself. <laughs> like they are absolute freedom to me and without them I would just be completely lost but I, I I see it in you know a dog can do this for you a cat can do this for you going down to the larder and volunteering can do this for you it just you just need to be among other people at some point because mm. otherwise it really is it's hard it's hard to find in yourself or for me anyway uh, a reason to go on I'm thinking of um one of the very last scenes in the fraud when yeah. Eliza Touche uh, the the main character from the book is confronted with the death of another main character. Uh, we won't spoil it for people. And she has an internal kind of dialogue about her life and her freedom. Um, it's really beautiful. It, it, it just talks about how all she wants to do is be free. Yeah. And it's interesting, I guess you're... It's the like, question of what, the, what, what is, is that freedom What involved? is the freedom? Like, yeah. I really noticed it with with the children thing is that at least in my own case you spend so long battling to try and retain your own space and yes. getting babysitted and then sometimes when you look at what you've battled for it it isn't very, it isn't very much and and the these children are about to to grow and disappear so quickly that you're going to get what you want sooner than you no. can imagine so all of these things are so out of sync with our discourse our capitalist discourse which is about you do you get what you want right. <laughs> and so when it comes into conflict with this other thing i guess we have in our heads this thing like am i have i become some kind of you know a victorian or some old-fashioned person who is domesticated as a traditional woman and we fight against that as if there's no liberating version of being connected to other people mm. and that is the triumph of capitalism it convinces you that it's just you and the shops it's just you and the phone, and that's all that there is. Whereas there is an older vision of like solidarity between people, within families, between children, between men and men, women and women, men and women, like a community mm. that, oh, that is freeing. It's not a trap. It's like the only thing that brings joy. I uh, have been, over the last few years, very, uh, well, since I've started working from home, very conscious of being domestic. 
fucking walking around picking up smelly socks and dirty pants <laughs> and this is this is my yeah, this is a lot of my life and yeah. it's changed and I think of my youth and even 10 years ago and how wild and unpredictable it was and how I traveled and how you know everything you're describing there about when you were younger as well and part of me that there's like there's a feeling of frustration that and again reading the fraud which we'll get to in a second one of her things that Eliza says is like I just wanted to live yeah so it's like what is what is living yeah, and, and a part question. of me felt like this wasn't living and I actually read Deborah Levy and one of the things she said struck me so hard which is about just living well and the art of living yeah and it doesn't have to be complicated it could be just eating a really fucking nice That's apple it. it could be drinking a gorgeous it could be swimming in a lake like these little things are living that's it and I think that's also one of the tricks of the patriarchy is it makes you feel that all the traditional supposedly feminine arts are humiliating Right. But why are they humiliating? And in my house, it was the other way around. My dad was the cook. My dad did a lot of the... My mum was working a lot. My dad did a lot of those things. Yeah. And they're not humiliating when a man does them, apparently. like They're noble. Yeah. I and mean, he's been dead a long time. And sometimes I can think of a meal he used to cook me and it'll, like, bring me to tears. Like, it's it was not. Yeah. And it was nourishing and it was beautiful. It was and an I'm act so of love. It was an act of love. And I can't cook like that. My children will never have those memories of me. But it's not nothing. It's like the art of living. Mm. And if if it was a supposedly traditional male art, you'd be getting awards for it. There'd be Oscars for it. Yeah. So I really resent the idea that these things are humiliating. Even when I am picking up pants off the stairs, I think I'm I'm doing something for somebody else. And there is something noble in that, I hope. Yeah, But of course the frustration is real. I think men suffer it just as much as women. And I think to the credit of many contemporary men, they are doing absolutely the same amount of work. Mm. In my household, it is absolute, there's no doubt that we do the same amount. Nick does often does more. I'm in awe of Nick. Like I yeah. come around your house and he's up fucking putting up the pigeon he stoppers so on the much. gutters. I'm like, oh my God. I'm, yeah. So wow. the frustration is no longer purely... Uh, female, which might be a, one of the triumphs of feminism. It's now uh, something that lots of people have to experience, men and women. It's not that it's not real, but I have come to realise that it's not entirely debilitating. And that also when it comes to art making, frustration can be really useful. Mm. <laughs> not being able to write, having your hands tied for part of every day. When I get down to my desk, I can't wait. It's like a coiled spring. Yeah. Whereas like... when I was 27, I do remember embarrassingly moping around mm. saying, oh, I've got writer's block or oh, I've got ennui. And mm. that to me is now like a comic yeah. thing, a ridiculous person who can't be taken seriously. When do you know that you're ready to write a book? Um, one of the advantages and privileges of White Teeth is is I am not writing books because I want to be in the papers or I really need the money. White Teeth, it has made my life possible. So I'm very grateful for the kid who wrote that book. But what it does mean is that if I'm going to write a novel, I'm going to write it because I have a real urge to write it. Like it has to happen. And how did you know you needed to write The Fraud? Tell me the story at the heart of it that made you know that you had um, to write it. It's probably from childhood. Like, I really wanted to know what the true relationship between England and Jamaica was. I think that's really it. And it's something like maybe the child of parents from those two places. You want you want the answer. I'd never really investigated it. I have the kind of simple version, that or the cartoon version that we get... You know, it really isn't taught in school. So a lot of what I've written over the past 20 years has filled in holes in in my education, you know, because you've really... So much history that's taught in British schools is completely partial. And just... It's not even that it's partial. It's that it's silent. I mean, I don't have anything against Black History Month, but to me, it's it's not a question of black history. It's a question of history. It really isn't... I. Like, you can tell me about the black RAF guy and the black footballer, and that's cool, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm mm. talking about the history of this country, mm. which, as far as I can tell, is 
as involved with the lives of diaspora people, Africa and Jamaica, as it's possible to be. Mm -hmm. I, it's very hard to understand how you teach the Victorian period without mentioning Jamaica. It, I don't really understand how you would do that. And I guess once I started reading, I felt this retrospective anger. And I know my husband feels it too from the Irish perspective, yeah. that when you're in an English school or an English university and you're reading about the 19th century, it slightly blows your mind. It's not like these were small matters, Ireland and Jamaica. Mm. These were absolutely central daily matters in Victorian England. They were in the papers every single day. It funds the entire enterprise. It's not a separate area called Irish history or black history. Mm. It is the history of this country. So I think for both of us, we've always felt like, why is this a marginal concern? Yeah. Like it doesn't need a separate name. It just all I need is for history to be taught in full everywhere and so reading it I was slightly my mind was slightly blown because I I do think when I thought about my childhood schooling I experienced my school as benign and my teachers as generous and kind so researching this book I really felt that something very wrong was going on with the curriculum in the 80s and 90s um, and I would really like to see it uh, remedied and so that was a kind of motivation to writing the book yeah I think wow, it was amazing. because it's the truth like, yeah. it, it's a fiction novel as the Americans call it but what happens in it is the truth it's and based on real yeah, life yeah it's based on real life and um, I, I really never understood the idea I don't think I'm being obtuse that if you taught this history you would create division in in the classroom as if the white kids and the black kids would be lined up against. It's, it's, if you read the history, it's not possible to even think of it, the history as a division between mm. two peoples. It's the history of a peoples. To me, it's not a culture war or a battlefield. It's just fascinating. So what did you learn that surprised you, I suppose, in your research? Um, I don't think I knew at all what a plantation in Jamaica was like. And I don't think most British people have any idea. You only know from movies. You know from American movies, and that is not an accurate description of the British situation. So it's much more useful to think of a sugar plantation as a, a factory, like the kind you could get in Manchester or Liverpool, in a field. Right. It is an industrial mm. thing. Um, and you ha also have to imagine, everyone is a slave, but there's many different kinds of jobs, as well as the ones you have in your mind. Yeah. There's a medical tent, which is run by the slaves themselves. So people using, you know, homemade cures, basically, yeah. which worked. You have to understand that slavery is in and of itself a crime against humanity. This does not mean that people are absolutely without agency on plantations. Mm. That's not true. Both things are true. There are people with agency and to be enslaved at, in any role on a plantation is a crime against humanity. Yeah. Both things are true. So I didn't know that uh, there was a day off. On the day off, Jamaican slaves had their grounds where they planted their own food. They took that food and sold it in the market. So they always had bits of money that they kept, that they hid. Mm. All of this was interesting to me. And I guess the most disruptive thing when you actually read the history is that in the movies you see uh, white overseers and black slaves but because of the incredible rate of sexual crime yep. on plantations many people on plantations would have looked as white as you number yep. one yeah. it's a huge amount of what would appear to us white people uh, light-skinned people mixed-race people enslaved yep. everywhere and then as it is in concentration camps and any extreme places, people in roles of power are sometimes also black. Mm. And trying to understand that is one of the most complicated parts of the book for me. I was given this wonderful essay by a friend of mine, by Primo Levi, called The Grey Zone, which is about concentration camps mm. and the fact of Jews in various roles uh, both in the ghetto, bringing other Jews to the concentration camps. And his argument in that essay is, it is not for you who have never been in a concentration camp to judge what people had to do to survive a living hell. And that to me is an important moral yeah. point. And the same thing is true of plantations. People did all kinds of things to survive. Yeah. 
if unless you've been in that kind of role, it is it is not for you to judge, but it is also worth knowing. And the other thing Primo Levi says, which complicates it, is it is not for you to judge, but also I, as a person in a concentration camp, can tell you that there is a moral difference between the person who throws themselves on the fence to kill themselves rather than take that role and the person. There are differences, mm. but it is still not for you to judge. Yeah. So it's a really complicated concept that, of course, there are degrees of action in any extreme situation but the extremity of it means that if you are outside of that zone you can't judge the actions people make in hell mm. so that was the kind of novel i wanted to write one which was both about the facts and had a kind of moral realism right yeah that people do all kinds of things to survive they are forced to um it doesn't make them evil there are also people who are heroic those people are always very few we should celebrate them, but they're not the general rule. Yeah. And all of those things interested me. And the more I read, the thought that these people really were my uh, ancestors, and it's not that far back. <laughs> like my, you're talking six generations, yeah. not even that most of the time, on on these plantations. It it really gave me a knowledge that I wish I'd had in school that when I looked at Jamaica itself, my family in particular, or any Jamaicans I know, that things in our families that seem to me upsetting or complex or traumatic are really not very surprising, yeah. given this unbelievable history. And a lot of the book is based in Kilburn, and you've spoken to me about how you can walk around there and see the entire area in a different light now, knowing... Yeah the history of the buildings and the, yeah. you know all of that as well. So it's kind of, it's not just lives and relationships and families, it's also place. It's kind of knowing what a place has been through. Yeah. I always as a kid had this feeling that this neighborhood was beautiful and pastoral. And I remember when I met Nick, he just thought I was out of my mind. Like, what are you talking about? This is an urban suburb. And it's pretty urban and the Kilburn yeah. High Road is not, you know, a pleasure parade. But to me, I always had this feeling, even walking down Kilburn High Road, that I was, oh, I can't describe it, walking in the countryside. I know it seems crazy, yeah. but when I was researching this book, I realised, oh, that's because I am. Like, it only disappeared yeah. about 110 years ago. Yeah. This was the countryside. Those little churches the hills that we struggle up on in our middle-aged mum way on our bikes mm -hmm. were beautiful rolling hills. Like, it's still there. The, the pavement has covered up, but the trees are still there. The chestnuts are still there. It's still Middlesex, still this beautiful spot. So I felt very vindicated that I, it was what I always thought it was. There's another bit in the book where Eliza Touche comes, comes back to the area, having moved out, comes back to Kilburn, walks up from... Um, all, all the way up the Edgware Road yeah. to Kilburn and sees it for what it is now. And, you know, she talks about these the houses comically close together. And, yeah. and, and there's a very affecting line where she talks about, um, I can't remember the exact line, but it's basically this place has changed so much, but I'm still Eliza Touche. Right. Um, I wondered about you coming back to Kilburn after being away for 12 years and how that must have felt like yeah. as a change, arriving back to this place that you grew up what that must it, have been like. It's really... I mean, the history of this place, the change... It, it's the history of England. That, and one conservative response to it is always, but I liked it before. I liked the five big houses and the rolling hills, or I liked the Victorian streets. Or, But these things are corrections of injustices that we, we have performed elsewhere. Mm. Like, these ways of immigration are the absolute consequence of our journeys out into these places mm. over the past 200 years. This is it. So I always try to celebrate and deal with every change because I know it's an experiment in living. What happened previously was that a very small amount of people could live. Yeah. And the rest of us were like nose pressed up against the glass. Now, more and more people are given a chance to live some kind of a life. Yeah. and. The further back you go in history, you realise how unusual that is, 
what an unusual experiment that is. And in our neighborhood, it's always at an intense pitch, right? Mm. Like the waves of newness come and come and come. And it's very easy to become the model of the, in, in my business, the grumpy English novelist who loved change up to a point and now doesn't want any more change. That's right. the most English thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but I am on the side of change. And the bits I find difficult, I guess the opposite bits, I find the gentrification difficult. I bitch about it a lot. Part of it's just melancholy because my friends don't live around here anymore. Mm. They can't stay here. Their parents sold their houses. It's just not possible. When the gap between the houses and the flats becomes existential, you create conflicts that are dangerous yeah. for everybody, Yeah. in fact. Um, and that part really breaks my heart. Before I let you go, um, change that you would still like to make? I, I, there are noble things, but I thought one of the most shameful things is that I still, 90s girl that I am, think that there is some magical 10 pounds that I could lose that would make my life happier. And I thought, how can that be true? I'm 47 years old. What on earth difference would it make if I lost 10 pounds? But still it sticks in my mind. And so then it is connected to another um, wish is that I would be less narcissistic. So the two things are the same thing. If I could think about myself less in all departments, 10 pounds and everything else, and just be outwardly focused yeah. towards others, um, that is the change I would like to see. I would just like to get over myself once and for all <laughs> and forever. I would love that. You can only blame the decade, babe. I, we're, we're, like the 90s. The 90s it's was just, bad for it. It, it was very bad. I think my nightmare is, no offence to... New York, maybe a little bit of French, but every now and then a writer dies and they have these beautiful, they're beautiful funerals in, in the big churches in New York, but they're not so much funerals as they're like, almost like literary parties. Right. And there are speeches and everybody. And I don't want to die like that. I want a funeral in which the people at the funeral knew me mm. and loved me and I actually did something for them that is does not involve writing. Yeah. And that I actually made some kind of difference to their actual lives. And I wanted to have lost 10 pounds <laughs> in the open coffin. <laughs> I look good in whatever it is that I'm wearing. It's going to be an open coffin. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Sadie, thank you so much. Thank you. The Fraud by Zadie Smith is out on Thursday. Make sure you get a copy. So that's it. We're up and running. Please subscribe to Changes if you want to get your new episodes every Monday and also rate and review us where you can. It's always appreciated. And while I have you, if you love Changes, today and tomorrow are your last days to vote for us in the British Podcast Awards. The category is the Listener's Choice Award. We've put a link in the show notes. If you could just go in, you type changes, you click vote, it literally takes two seconds. It would be so appreciated. Thank you, thank you, thank you if you can be bothered to do that. And thank you for listening today. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. We'll see you next week for more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.